Welcome to episode 21 of the HS Health Tech Podcast. I'm James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I've got Mark Harmon, who's an incredible guy. He's worked for Nike's global business before becoming a doctor, and now works for a health tech company called eConsult. I'm going to tell you all about that in a second, but first, an announcement from us at HS is that our accelerator program for startups is now 0% equity and no program fee. So if you're looking to build or scale a health tech company and you're looking to raise money or you know someone who is, do get in touch with us via our website, which is hs.ventures and apply to be part of our new accelerator program. You can also follow us on Twitter at hsventure, on Instagram at hs.ventures and on LinkedIn at hs.ventures. And sometimes you need to put HS dot and hit the space bar just for that to come up. For those that don't know, I also write for Forbes on Health Tech. And you can follow me and all of my latest articles on Twitter at James Someru, which is J-A-M-E-S-S-O-M-A-U-R-O-O. And on Instagram at J underscore Soms, S-O-M-S. And on LinkedIn at James Someru. So let me tell you a little bit more about my guest. So Mark originally studied pharmacology. He then became a buyer for M&S. He was there for seven years traveling the world. He then worked for Arcadia Group, which includes the likes of Miss Selfridge and Topshop. He was opening up flagship shops in places like Rio de Janeiro. And then because he loves sport, he went on to Speedo and set up Speedo Beach, which is a sort of a business within a business, which grew to about 20 million in three years. He had a team in Australia and some other incredible beach locations around the world. And then he got headhunted by Nike to run their $100 billion sports apparel business globally and worked with the likes of Wayne Rooney, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Mark then had a pretty moving personal experience. Um, when his son was born and well, his priorities in life changed. And that led him to become the oldest medical student through King's College Medical School. He graduated as a doctor and went on this great journey to combine his business and medical acumen and now works for eConsult, which is a health tech company that streamlines primary and urgent care through an online consultation platform. So enjoy the podcast and have a listen out for just how many times Mark uses the phrase, just do it. You can tell he's worked for Nike. Enjoy. So, Mark, welcome. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, very well. Looking forward to the bank holiday. Although it's oh, be cold and windy, but... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, Mark, so, um, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us your story? Sure. Okay. So, my story is a little bit different, I guess. So, um, I'm a doctor, but I'm a very old, probably the oldest junior doctor in town, actually. Um, I've got the... Probably not the best um, accolade of being the oldest medical student through King's College um, at the age of 42. Um, so I, I took a very interesting route into medicine. So I, I basically spent 20 odd years in business. Um, and my first degree, many years back, was from Edinburgh as a pharmacologist. So I qualified in pharmacology. Um, I had an interest, obviously, in biology and human physiology medicine at that point, but I also was driven very much by um, uh, an entrepreneurial sort of curiosity, I think is probably the best way, and, and I've always wanted to sort of run my own business, set up my own business. Um, medicine was in my family, there's obvious route for me to go, but I sort of resisted a little bit. Um, so when I qualified from <clears throat> pharmacology, I uh, went into business at that time, getting into business in pharmaceutical companies, which would have been the obvious thing to do. You needed a PhD. I had had enough of studying. Uh, I wanted to see some of the real world. So um, I went to some milk round presentations at that time. Um, Marks and Spencer were one of the companies, the blue chip companies um, that came presented. I went along purely for the free wine and sandwiches with some friends <laughs> and uh, got, talking to, got talking to one of the buyers. Um, and it sounded an absolutely brilliant um, job for a young person uh, traveling the world. Um, great, great uh, management, uh, retail training, um, but also you know traveling four corners of the globe, sourcing, uh, designing, developing product um, in a very fast-moving uh, retail industry. Which uh, at that point, MS were the number one retailer in the world. So anyway, cut long story short, I interviewed for a position. Um, 
at that time, they, were, they took four graduates on in a new scheme, looking for sort of scientists, scientists um, bringing scientists in to try to further their product development or using new technologies. So I joined and I got my first year at MS was basically sent to Leeds University to do a, a diploma in business management. Uh, so it's great because I was on a full salary, living the life of a student, it was best of both worlds. Um, so the four of us went up there, had a great time, and then went back mm-hmm. into buying the buying group at MS. So I spent four, I spent seven years at MS, uh, learning my trade, uh, learning, learning a lot about business management, leadership, of course, um, and traveling to most wonderful places in the early 90s being treated uh, like a VIP wherever I went, um, mm-hmm. and trying to the, far, to the far east of the Middle East, to Latin America, to Eastern Europe at that time, which was very, very different to what it is now. And it was absolutely amazing. And I had a job after seven years, wound up in Hong Kong in the buying office in Hong Kong. Um, but uh, I felt at that time I wanted to uh, see the world a little bit um, and get more experience from a business point of view rather than just with one company. So I then uh, went to work for Arcadia Group, um, main sort of brands with Selfridge, Burt and Topshop, and became international business development manager, um, basically taking brand, the brands abroad. So looking for these opportunities, looking for researching the most uh, likely relevant markets, looking for partners, franchise or license models, um, and then setting up um, retail outlets overseas and mainly Miss Selfridge and Topshop to be honest they were the most um, exportable brands we had but again I did that for four years and was very lucky in the sense we said we opened up a first flagship store for Topshop in Rio de Janeiro uh, Japan the Middle East we, we worked on a flagship store for Fifth Avenue in New York which opened up after I left um, but some great opportunities and some met some really really interesting people my boss was fantastic about my first day at Arcadia uh, was on a business class flight down to Rio with my boss and within half an hour of landing we were in a helicopter traveling flying over the Corcovado and Copacabana oh, Beach. Sure. <laughs> so uh, I thought this is pretty this is this is pretty good. This, That's like the it. glamorous side um, of business, right? That that is, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't last long. It's not all like that. Um, <laughs> and then after four years, um I I been very very interested in sport and um that time I wanted to um sort of try to um, move my experience into a sort of more sport branding direction. So I applied to, I wrote to the president of Speedo at that time. Um, and luckily enough, they were looking at uh, moving their performance Speedo swimwear business into uh, more fashion and, and beach um, area. So this is a time when surf brands, you know, the sort of late 90s, early 2000 surf plans were becoming very, very trendy. Um, so I set up Speedo Beach. So I went as vice president of Speedo and set up a completely new business, which is a really exciting thing for me to do. I recruited my own team, moved the business from Nottingham from the old factory down into London to Design Center. Uh, we built a business from zero to 20 million within three and a half years. Um, we got some great advertorials in the likes of the Sunday Times magazine. We collaborated with some really cool swimwear designers at the time. I actually went to a fashion shoot. We got Brian Adams, who was the, you know, Brian Adams, the rock star. Yeah. The rock star now. Uh, well, he became a fashion photographer when he oh, wow. had his guitar. Um, so I went down to his, his hangout in Chelsea, and we had Naomi Campbell, Kate, Kate Moss, oh, sure. and a couple of other models down there doing a shoot, which was fantastic. So you can imagine oh, I was in my like element. So before... name dropping now, Mark. <laughs> I know, sorry, but <laughs> so for four years basically, I was, you know, I, I was traveling around the best beaches in the world, doing lots of research, looking for some great designers, looking for some surfers that we could sponsor. Um, Speedo was born out of Australia, so we had so an office out there, so I went down to Australia quite often with a team down there. So really exciting um, mm. and loved it. Uh, and, you know, it was my sort of own business I created in a way um, and very passionate about my team and very loyal to them. Then Nike came knocking and um, for nine months, I resisted. Uh, so I got a, a call from headhunters. And for nine months, I resisted, saying, no, 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 I want to finish what I'm doing here at Speedo. I'm really passionate about it. And in the end, uh, I succumbed and went over to talk to them because uh, ultimately in my industry at that time, you know, Nike, Nike were the pinnacle. So I thought, mm-hmm. well, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere, to put a famous phrase. So, um, and also it was a, a real challenge for me and an opportunity as well. So I 
in the end, I went over to Amsterdam, European head office, and headed up, became business director for Performance Apparel, uh, which is a $100 million business for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, everything except football was included in that. Um, did that for three years. Um, worked with 37 different nationalities. Really opened my eyes to you know, truly international global business. Um, and so, you know, meet, meetings. I had, I had three bosses, one in Amsterdam, one in, one in the UK, one in the US. So there's a real virtual sort of management network as well. And lots of, um, it's a bit like the United Nations, you know, so I was representing Europe at the table. Mm. Um, but I had to bid for what I wanted against, <laughs> uh, you know, Latin America, the US, uh, the Far East. So, yeah, that was really good learning experience as well, actually, because you, you know, it's putting together, putting together the business case and trying to convince and influence people mm. that that's the right thing to do. Um, I, know, and then, I know what most people are, are thinking that are listening right now, Mark, which is why on earth would you go from this lifestyle to doing medicine? Exactly. Well, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've done some crazy things uh, in my life. And probably this is the, the most crazy. Um, there's, there's a number of factors, to be honest, James. One, um, as you get older, um, you know, your perspectives and values change. So mm-hmm. sort of minded. Um, I had uh, children, so I had two young children. Um, I've been thinking about doing medicine actually for a while. So when I was 30, I actually applied. So when I was leaving Arcadia, I actually applied to study medicine as a, as oh, a wow. graduate at St. George's. I got a place and I bottled it, to be honest. Um, not one because your name, Amy Campbell and Kate Moss party was probably over the horizon. Well, I did. It, it, yeah, it was a <laughs> tough choice. Tough choice. You know? hadn't quite gone to speed um, at that point. So. <laughs> uh, that's right. So, you know, anyway, so I decided to stay where I was and, you know, my nuggets of gold I was told were in my experience in business. So that's why I said, and, and it's great. I, I had a fantastic 10 years after that, but that mm. seed never went away and that seed got bigger and bigger. And especially as, as you rise up through corporate life, um, you know, you do less, less of the doing and more of the um, thinking. But part of that also is more, more and more politics, uh, particularly as you get into big organizations. I've worked for, you know, multinational corporates yeah. for a long time. So, um, and I, I, to be honest, I, I wanted to change. Um, and also I felt that, uh, you know, I had another 30 years left of my career. I didn't want to continue just selling shoes, selling trainers. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Nike is a fantastic company. I love it to death. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to do a bit more. And it sounds very cliched, but I wanted to do a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to do something that felt a little bit more uh, of value, you mm-hmm. know, to me. Um, Good for you. And I guess the key, but, but it's also a big, you know, it was a big decision because um, I was leaving. My next job would have been vice president in the US. And once you get wow. to vice president level in Nike, you're sort of, you're, you know, you're made financially. But yeah. it wasn't, you know, money Money is no longer the motivator. I mean, it's important. I mean, money's important, don't get me wrong. And, to have a you know you need money to have a certain level of freedom and everything but um it's not the the single motivating factor for me and um and so i wanted to, i wanted to do more and one thing that nike did was was teach me because i, I had the you know, great fortune to work with some amazing athletes like michael jordan wayne rooney roger federer you know, oh, like wow. the, you know nadal um and one thing that's consistent amongst all of these guys is they work and work and work and they're totally dedicated and provided you put in the work, obviously you need a bit of talent as well, but provided you put in work, anything is achievable, you know, and they literally just do it. And, and that's, that ethos, you know, runs hmm. through the, the sort of veins of the company. And to, to be honest, also through me, and I felt, you know what, I, I want to maximize, you know, my talent. And I also want to do more with my life. And, and I never want to look back and think, what if? You know, hmm. and, and that, when, that, when I was 30 and that St. George's decision, I always... You know, now and again, I would look back and think, you know, what if? I, mean, I don't want to live my life like that. But the key thing, the, the key catalyst uh, that really made me jump off the cliff was my, was my son. Because so two young kids, um, my son was born and he was, um, he was, he was quite poorly um, when he was first born. And we spent a lot of time in and out at a hospital. Um, and and it was uh, unless anybody's you know been through this. I mean, lots of people sympathise with you, and you know it's very very nice. But unless you've been through it, you don't you can't really appreciate the impact it had on on people, you know, on your own mm-hmm. person, but also on on the family, on your wider friends, on my young daughter at the time as well. So we were in and out of hospital, playing tag team with my wife, you know, dropping our daughter off. It was eighteen months to our friends and family to the 
after you know spending nights in hospital, we're gone for quite a long period of time. Ward rounds would happen in the morning, and and you know, a group of doctors would come around. This huge army of doctors would come, and you wouldn't know who they were. Nobody would introduce themselves. They would then you know talk about what the plan was, and they'd find something else that was maybe for, needed further investigating, and something else another day, and then something else, and just kept going on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And it's very very difficult time for all of us. And I spent many um, many hours sitting in hospital by my son's bed, you know, thinking, because <clears throat> you don't know that time, we didn't have a diagnosis, we didn't know what the prognosis was going to be. Um, spent, spent a lot of time thinking just about life, about, you know, the general things. And, yeah. and, um, and there's one day we went to um, some sun, sun got home after a, a few weeks, so we were, we were in and out hospital the next year. We went, there's one day um, that really, I guess, one, one, that was a day that changed my life, it was, which was when, and we went to, we were at St. George's Hospital, just been seeing the neurosurgeon. Um, and we were, in the, we were heading home. It was about six o'clock on a February evening, pretty dark, pretty dank evening. And uh, we went back to the car, um, the car park machine, the payment machine was broken. So I said to my wife, you know, we'll stay here. I'll just go around. I had to go around to security and back at the hospital to pay for the parking. So I went around to security. And lo and behold, around the back uh, security, the little security booth was next to the medical school. Um, and this, there was this guy on the desk who was just packing up. And I thought, I looked at him and I thought, you know what, I'm going to ask him how old you have to be to study medicine. Um, what's the upper age limit? Because they, they used to be an upper age So I said, hello, you know, do it. I know the, uh, there's an upper age limit, but you know, can you remind me what it is? And he said to me, there isn't any more. We've taken the, the agent that's gone. I went years ago. I said, really? I said, yeah. I said, okay. Anyway, so I went, I then went back to uh, the car park, got in the car and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get into medicine. Knowing full well, it was going to be difficult. Um, but at that point, I thought, you know, sod it. I'm going to do it. I've been thinking about it for long enough. If I don't get my act together, I'll never do it. So I'm going to do it. And my son, uh, I guess, was a real catalyst to do that. So then I thought, right. How on earth am I going to do this? Because I haven't studied for 20 years. So <laughs> I went out the next, the next day and, and, and bought A-level chemistry, physics books again and started going through some of those questions, trying to refresh on them. Because I wanted to prove to myself, number one, oh, wow. uh, academically, I, I, can, I can still do it. <laughs> yeah, of course. of course. Um, so, so, and at that time, and I, and I researched some of uh, the sort of graduate medical schools, and there were quite a few uh, more than when I applied before. You know, St. George's was the pioneer in sort of graduate medicine, but there are quite a few more options now. So, um, so I, I thought, well, first thing I'm going to do, St. George's needs, you need to sit a GAMSAT, which is an entrance exam, which is a general Australian medical entrance exam. Um, but you need to sit that first. So you, you need to do a UK CAT, which is a base, basic yeah. UK test every, med- every medical student does, does, as you know. So I did that. And then I thought, well, I'm going to try St. George's, and they need to do the GAMSAT to go onto the graduate course. So... I'll try that because that'll be a good barometer. If I fail that, then I'll actually I'll just stay where I am and I'll just count. Mm. But past that, then you know, then I know I can do this. Anyway, so I, I spent, I enrolled up for an online course. Um, got this massive um, file, uh, pile of paper to run through and exam questions and everything. And so I spent uh, spent a year um, literally going through that and doing practice practice tests for the GAMSAT and I was doing this when I was working so I was doing it at night most of the time early morning and we up at five in the morning trying to do exam questions when I was going off to present to the president of Nike you know in Oregon <laughs> and this sort of stuff but I knew it crashed you know the whole thing would crash it'll be very stressful anyway long story short I sat the GAMSAT and I went there there were 3,000 people in this Royal Horse Cultural Halls in Victoria <laughs> I've never seen anything like it wow. and uh, I got I got through so, um, so I then applied for, applied for, um, for Barts, for St. George's, for King's and for Imperial. And I got three offers. And I, in the end, I went for King's because it was a bit more traditional. Um, and there was, they had you know, cadavers for anatomy and this sort of stuff. So, mm. And also it's closer to where I lived. And also it's got a great reputation. So, mm. wow, great. Anyway, so, so I, did, I did my uh, four years uh, as a GCAP graduate professional entry program. Uh, with 30 other really amazing people. Um, yeah, who, and, and, and so you do basically the first, the first year is two academic years pushed into one, so much less holidays and it's much more intense, which is great because I just wanted to get through it as quickly as possible. Um, <laughs> but I loved it because I was using my brain in, uh, in a completely different way and 
I was learning things that were really, really interesting, you know, mm. like the Krebs cycle and all this sort of stuff. Um, uh, so that, that was really good. And then in years two, three, four, we then moved into our clinical years and we were, we were then put in with all the other students who, are, by the way, are incredible. I mean, I, I was really impressed just at the quality uh, uh, and the aptitude of, you know, these young, these young people who are, most of them have come straight out of school. Mm. Um, so, uh, you yeah, know, and, and I, I was old enough to be their dad. It's a bit embarrassing, really, because <laughs> the thing is, you always feel young, don't you? And uh, but it's, it's not until you see a picture of yourself with everybody else you realise how old you are. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So I got uh, I got through I got through my um, my medical training. And the funny thing was, the hardest thing of all, I, I was expecting it would be you know, the academic stuff would be really difficult, dropping from a somebody to a nobody would be really difficult. But actually the hardest thing was the things you don't really think about. So, you know, the impact on your family, the impact on, you know, finance, um, this sort of stuff. You know, I'd saved mm-hmm. up money, I'd planned it all, but but uh, that money was you know, was eroding very, very quickly and it's very stressful, you know, when you're on your last bit of, your last pile of cash. Um, mm. So, yeah, so you, may, you, you, know, you have to make a, a lot of sacrifices. And also, you know, I'm, I'm responsible, you know, for to, to children and wife to look after. So, you know, there are, there are additional pressures um, mm. that, you know, you, you, I probably should have thought about, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> but it's interesting <laughs> that even in itself, the fact that obviously you've seemingly got this huge calling within you to go and do it. And so whilst, yeah, you've, you've put contingencies in place to solve the problems that you can see coming, there's still just this unrelenting belief that you're going to get through this and you're going to get to this um, next career, which you feel is not only a challenge, which I think is attracting you at this point by the sounds of things. Like every time you describe one of these gates to get through, it seems like a, a well and, and the next welcome challenge again, using mm. the and stuff, but also it's this calling that you clearly felt, right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there was, to be honest, I had, I had no choice. I had to do this. I think, you know, mm. I, 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 it's one of those things, a very, very strong conviction. And it's a, you know, it's a terrible cliche to want to do the right thing, but you know, mm. ultimately, and I, and I feel very privileged because I had a fantastic, you know, 20, 20 years, um, you know, very, very lucky, uh, lived very, very well. Um, and, you know, as I say, I had the most amazing experiences, met the most incredible people all over the world mm. and, and really enjoyed what I was doing, which, and it's not until you, and, and I was in a bubble, I guess. And it's not until you come out, step outside of that, of that sort of comfort zone and you realize actually especially doing what i'm doing now you see mm. the you see real real the, the real world yeah and you know some people aren't handed such um you know such fortune and so yeah for me i wanted to you know also take what i've learned and also contribute something you know back in a, in a way yeah. which sounds really nah naff but it's, <laughs> you know that's that's part of the driver you know yeah <clears throat> so let's fast forward then to the night shift to registrars that are much younger than you telling you what to do to mm. life as an F1 writing <laughs> discharge summaries and um, PRs and all other exciting things. That I'm sure you wouldn't have had to do at Nike. Um, how, yeah. What, what was that like? Did you, did you have in the back of your mind the idea that you were going to convert this all to business in the end that you were going to combine this medical career with business how did you get through those difficult times yeah i i, I did i mean it's always been my my end game was to try to combine all my experience from the commercial world and with, with medicine and put the two together because i think there's you know there's and we talk about this i'm sure uh shortly but there's a huge opportunity at the moment mm. particularly at the moment we're coming to a very pivotal time in terms of healthcare and technology and all sorts of things and there's massive opportunity and i think there's a there's a huge there's a growing need for people with you know cross experience and medicine you know is quite still very traditional um for many obvious reasons um it's another bubble that you talked about right it is exactly completely agree with you the the necessity for people that have done different things, particularly people that have done things in technology is just incredibly, incredibly important. I mean, I mean, that's a good question actually that, that has just come to my mind. I mean, you going through this with all that business experience, were you seeing these systems and the technology being used and just 
having floods of ideas? Were you frustrated? Could you, could you plot a way through it? I mean, it, it must have been incredibly frustrating. Um, some of the stuff you must have been using at Nike and, and Arcadia and Speedo and stuff, you know, it must be far in advance of what we're doing in, in healthcare. Oh, completely. I, mean, I think floods of tears is probably the best way to wow. describe it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, you know, my, my foundation years were uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Bits of it were fantastic. You know, I loved it. We were working with patients, when you, especially when you help, you know, get patients better or you positively contribute, you know, to, to a patient's, you know, well-being or whatever. Then that's really hugely rewarding. And, you know, patients on... 99.9% of the patients are fantastic. Um, but the system side of it is terrible. And, and that's just my opinion. But my, my first six months as an F1 doctor, I used to go home every night pulling my hair up, saying to my poor wife, you won't believe what happened today. You won't believe this. You won't mm-hmm. believe this. The, the waste, um, the, some, some of the attitudes, um, the systems, um, the management. I mean, it's just... It's quite, it's quite staggering, to be honest. Coming from where I've come from, which you know, ultimately, uh, I mean, particularly Nike, you know, it's, it's a world leader in creative innovation mm. and mm. You know, global management, matrix management and this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and also going from a, a role where you know, I, I saw a problem, I saw an opportunity, and we went for it. And we, we either fixed the problem or you know, we maximized the opportunity with my team. Mm. And, being, and there's no opportunity to do that in the NHS. And I think that's the hardest thing. And that's... That, for me, is the biggest thing that needs to change, particularly because there's some amazing people. As you, as you know, James, there's some fantastic mm. talent, probably some of the best talent in, in the country, possibly in the world, within the NHS. And a lot of them don't have the opportunity to express ideas, opinions, try, try new things, look at systems, manage. Number one, because they haven't necessarily been given that experience or education, but also they don't have the opportunity because they're... They are working so hard over and above, um, you know, over and beyond the contracts, their hours, um, and they don't have time and they don't have the opportunity. And, and a lot of them are broken by the system. It's really sad because the NHS does, you know, as a, and it's a, again, a cliche, but it, run, it runs on the goodwill of, of the staff and um, they, they are incredible. And, and I think it's interesting because we're doing some work with the military at the moment and they, they had similar issues in terms of adoption of innovation and, you know, systems not talking to each other and, and this huge long procurement cycle. And by the time you procure something, it was out of date, this sort of stuff. And they've set up an innovation hub where it's basically to look at proof of concepts, try them really, really quickly, evaluate them, and then, then adopt them. Um, and I think, you know, the NHS would do, would do well, you know, doing something similar. And there, but there are, there are some great things going on in the NHS. And I think, you know, I'm really encouraged by what's happening with the 10 year plan, with the digital strategy, with the app coming along, the clinical entrepreneur program, which I'm part of and run by an amazing guy called Professor Tony Young. You know, that, that's starting to look differently at how we can maximize the talent we've got. So for instance, historically, you know, doc, the doctor's training program is very rigid, as you know, you know, it's, you go on to, you apply for training specialty, anesthetic surgery, GP, whatever it is, and then you're on that track for, three to seven years, sometimes longer. And it's and you know exactly what you're going to be doing for the next seven years, and that's it. You just go on that track, and it's very, very rigid. For many obvious reasons, I understand why that is, but equally, there's no opportunity to step off, to come up for breath, to think about actually how, I'm, how might we do this differently or how might we do this better? Because actually what we're doing is, is a formula that's 50, 70 years old in, in many cases. Um, so, and, and these are the, these are the brains that have the capacity to do that, you know, so, and I think there's, so there's, there's some huge talent, uh, and opportunities that need to be nurtured. And I think, you know, the NHS, um, has, it started to recognize that, um, and like any big organization, you know, it's, it takes a long time to change, but it is starting to recognize that. And there's some, there's some great people within the organization now that, you know, very, very young, very dynamic, um, very passionate about you know trying to trying to change mm-hmm. things for the better but there are many many challenges still exist and yeah that's i completely agree and it sort of comes back to your point that you made before about 
you know the the requirement for people that have got different skills to actually come in and view a lot of these systems with fresh eyes you know the, the computer scientists the data scientists that you know the biomedical engineers and you know and we, that's what you know that's what we do at hs you know these are the sorts of people that we're finding and you know helping them start companies helping them get their initial revenue their initial evidence you know and, and as you say it's, it might not be often the NHS market that these people go to first. It might be exploring B2C models, you know, creating devices that go straight to the consumer. It might be looking yeah. at insurers or the private sector, which, you know, has a responsibility to trial things when often the NHS can't. And there's all these different people that are utilizing this, this period that we're in now of almost opportunity where there is, there are so many, there's so many places and areas that we can innovate and when we can actually find these people that are that are outside with these different skills, perhaps linking them with these people that have the main expertise that have existed within medicine, you know, we're seeing these companies popping up um, that are solving all sorts of challenges in, in really innovative ways. And I, I do agree, you know, the, the NHS can be a very difficult place to innovate in. Um, but, you know, also, and you'd probably agree with this, the NHS needs to be respected because it, it treats over a million patients every 36 hours, I think. Um, so I've been told, you know, it, it's got huge amounts of entrenched systems that have existed for a long time. And they almost have to be quite rigid in the way that they do things simply because they're, they're looking after so many people. So I think it is up to entrepreneurs to recognize that to actually understand the way that that works and to find ways to get revenue and get evidence, become a sustainable business and then come back around. You know, I mean, the good examples of people that have been on this podcast before, like Peter Haynes from Sleepio was on last week, you know, evidence based CBT, you know, um, sleep app that goes straight to the consumer because he's got loads of evidence. You know, Stephen from Echo has been on it before, which is like a convenience company for pharmacy. So there's all these different bits that, that are possible. And I guess on that note, you know, e-consult you know who you work for now i mean that's that's popped up as as a good example right exactly yeah absolutely i think you know the, we the, you're right the nhs is, is an institution that needs to be respected and it's you know it's probably the way it is the best healthcare delivery system in the world there's lots of things that don't work as well but when you need it it works really really well and it's, it's the most efficient healthcare delivery system particularly primary care yeah um, on, on the planet and uh, they see they see over a million patients a day in primary care, which is phenomenal. Um, but there, you know, there are there are loads of challenges. Uh, you know, increasing demand expectations on the system. Patients are getting, yeah, you know, we, we're increasing elderly population, increased complexity of patients. Um, GPs and in, in, in e-consult, particularly, which is main, mainly at the moment in primary care, where we work, we are working and moving to urgent and emergency care. But you know, the GP practices are, are under probably the, the most strained they've they've ever been under. The number of GPs isn't increasing. The number of patients per practice is going up by about 9%, 15% on the last read, increase in GP appointments. Um, so, and, and there's an increase in private provision as well because you know, patients just can't get in to see their GP. Um, so what eConsult does, um, it's basically born from the NHS. So it's built by you know, doctors within the NHS who are clinically led company um, on our executive board. There's Four out of five of us are, are clinicians within, still working within the NHS, trying to address some of these issues. Um, so eConsult is a, it's an online triage platform or consultation platform uh, initially developed for general practice where they, patients basically go onto the practice website or they'll soon be able to download the NHS app and access it through the app. Um, and if they want to consult with their doctor, um, they can go through uh, an asynchronous consultation uh, 24-7. And basically, we ask them questions that we would ask um, if we were sitting face to face with a patient and built behind there are red flags throughout the process. So it's for minor conditions, it's not for emergency. And if, but if there are symptoms that are suggestive that a uh, patient may need urgent attention, then we, we automatically intelligently pick up those symptoms and signpost them off to more urgent care or, or potentially to any, although the diversion rate to any is, is less than 2%, so it's very minor. Um, but there, is, there are those safety um, flags built in. It's very simple for a practice to take on. It's very cost-effective and it's very easy to use. So it's basically that just bolts onto any uh, practice workflow, um, regardless of the way that practice is set up and it's interoperable with any of the clinical systems. Um, but I guess the key thing, what we're trying to do here is to, to manage demand and improve efficiency for practices. So. Uh, we know a lot of patients turn up at a GP surgery that don't necessarily need a face-to-face -face appointment or they may not need to see a GP. 
not, that's not to say they don't have a genuine concern or an issue, but it may not need uh, a required face-to-face appointment. And we know from history, we're currently in 750 practices, we're seeing in about 1,200 practices around the country. Um, and from the data we've got, over 70% of online consultations that come into the practices don't require a face-to-face interaction. Um, a lot of those are dealt with, about 18, 18% can be dealt with through sort of self-help pharmacy advice. Um, uh, a number, about 30% can be dealt with through um, repeat prescription and about 40% or 30, 30% depending on the practice can be dealt with with a phone call. Um, but if you do need to see the, see the patient, then you've already got their history up front, you know roughly what's going on as a, as a clinician. And that interaction, that face-to-face interaction becomes much more efficient. In fact, one of our docs, one of our uh, customers down in uh, a GP, GP practice in Hampshire, um, he very proudly says that you know his with eConsult now because he's he's got the history up front. His ten-minute face-to-face consultation is the equivalent to a twenty-minute face-to-face. So, so there are many um, sort of benefits for practices. Obviously, the, the remote closure rates keeping. You know, saving on those number of face-to-face appointments for patients who need it more. So triaging by clinical need is one of them, but it also enables practices to better utilize their resources. So for instance, if a new consult comes in and it's a, maybe a respiratory issue, it can go to the, the respiratory specialty nurse, for instance, or an administrative request can go to the admin team. Um, so we're, we're, see, we're seeing practices also use their resources better, um, and so which means less, less come through to the GP. So the GPs are seeing the more complex Mm. Uh, the, the sicker patients, and also um, you know, that there are many different ways of using it. But uh, practices, some practices have changed their telephone triage to an online triage, for instance, cut down on their duty doctor callbacks. Um, their duty doctors now go home on time. Some things have changed a walk into an online, again triaging patients by clinical need. So it makes the practice more efficient. But also importantly, uh, this I think as well is that it also makes it gives the practices, uh, particularly the clinicians, a better work-life balance. So uh, we're seeing more and more interest now in terms of practices. So particularly, this is particularly relevant with PCNs and primary care networks that are evolving yeah. over the next number of years. Is that by central centralised models? So a group groups of practices might club together and actually put an online offer, which they centrally manage. The patients can come in, and um, you know they can go to a central hub where there are doctors who are experienced in remote closure and online consultations that they generally tend you know, to be more confident in um, processing mm. e-consults. Um, and, you know, or, or you can flick a switch out of hours, you know, you can go centrally into an out-of-hours office. So, so it enables a better quick response time for the patient, um, but also enables doctors and uh, clinicians potentially to work from home, you know, to have a, a, a different um, work-life balance. Some, you know, one day in, they can work centrally in the hub, for instance, and uh, three, four days face-to-face. Because it's, it's very intense, as, as you know, it's very intense seeing patients. And when you're seeing patients, probably have 36 patients, sometimes more every day in 10-minute consultations, it's very hard work. So, yeah, so we're trying, we're trying to address, address some of those, some of those issues that we're currently facing. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's there's three things I guess that I'd, I'd like to bring up on this. I mean, so first of all e-consult and i guess the the product and and everything about it it's an incredibly simple idea at, at its core right the idea that patients can go online they can fill out questionnaires and that triage can be done you know semi-automatically if not fully automatically to decide whether or not they need to go to a pharmacy or to decide whether they need to actually come to the gp so for for a gp practice to actually then adopt this they obviously as you said you, you know they, they'll get less patients actually reaching the gp because they actually get seen in in various other means that are more appropriate and and that must solve you know an incredible amount of problems you know a few of which that you've mentioned you know for the patients themselves obviously they're they're going to the right place at the right time they are getting a better appointment when they get to the gp because that gp's now got a questionnaire full of information about them um, and for the clinicians as well, you know, that they've, they've not only, again, got the ability to participate in a, in a better consultation, but also they've got the, the knock-on benefits of, of more flexibility and all these different things. It's just quite fascinating, isn't it, that, that from a tech perspective, it's, it's relatively simple but can solve so many problems. Um, so I find that fascinating. And I guess the third bit is, is 
the scale that you've achieved. I mean, you know, 750 practices that eConsult is now in. You know, that's an incredible, incredible amount of, of, of scale within within the NHS. And we, and we hear what with GP practices. So we hear a lot that it's, you know, quite difficult to scale because of the fragmentation system. But it seems like you guys have done that very well. And I often say that the companies that have managed to do this within NHS organizations and, and the public sector are people that tend to solve a problem that is experienced in the same way across multiple sites, which is often quite rare. But it seems like this is a good example of one of those things. So, yeah, I'd just be interested to hear about, you know, your perspective on 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 the tech first of all, but then also that scale bit as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, you're right. It is a really, really simple idea. Um, and other than, you know, the, the intelligence built in behind the scenes in the, in the clinical templates and the, al- and the algorithms, um, it's a very simple idea. You know, we're taking a history in their own time and we just send it into the practice. Um, very, very simple, um, which is part of its beauty as well. You know, it's some, sometimes a simple idea is always the best ones. Um, and when you think about it, actually, you ask a lot, a lot of people I talk to, you say, well, why, I, why hasn't this happened before? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, but I think, so the tech, you're right, the tech is not a problem at all. Um, the interesting, the, the most difficult uh, barrier that we sort of find, and I guess this is not, not, What's unexpected is it, it's change, you know, it's change, it's behavior, that, that change management. And, and it goes back to your earlier point, James, about evidence, you know, which is really, really important. So um, a lot of GPs will talk to us. So the, 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 it's interesting because it's like, like any new technology, you get the early adopters, you get that big bell curve, and then you get mm-hmm. the, the sort of um, the, the resistors at, at the other end. And, like hard the laggards, exactly. Um, and, you know, so there are, you know, we're contacted regularly by pioneering young GPs who, you know, know something has to change, something has to give, and they're very keen to do, try something and, you know, try, try new things. Then um, the other end, obviously, there are those practices who have been working particular models for many, many years, and change is difficult for them. And I totally understand that, to be honest. And, but what we're seeing is that the adoption, um, we, it feels like we're getting to a tipping point because, uh, you know, where, where you've got champion practice, it's great for us to go out and sell to GPs. We're, you know, we're doctors ourselves. So there's a credibility there, but actually the best, uh, the best influencer are their, their own peers. So if we can get their, their champion practices um, on patches around CCGs that then start up, see it, see it working really well. A great example in SIDCUP, for instance, where there's one SIDCUP Medical Center um, who actually resisted a long time because they've got elderly population that live after care homes, hate care homes. Um, but this worked with us to look at their model and um, how they could adopt uh, econ and uh, They adopted it and they've done some great work. And they've now shifted about 25% of their of their appointment book into an, into an online space. They're providing two hour turnaround for patients, which is a fantastic response time. Um, they're they're working so well that a lot of practices around uh, them in their CCG patch have now asked us for assistance and help and there's some healthy competition going as well so it's, it's really really good because i think you know people want to see something works first before they adopt it which is understandable mm. we're also building up lots of data and evidence and you know we we, we had a there's a paper published back in 2015 uh, on a very early um group of practices that adopted uh, e-consult um it was it was a very balanced i think um piece of work but you know, there were, there were some challenges in terms of adoption, in terms of some clinicians were using better than others. Some felt they were duplicating work because processes weren't right. There wasn't a, a great amount of marketing. And that was really useful for us because we, we've taken all of those learnings and embedded them into the product because we, we have our own development team. We work on Agile Sprint. Every two weeks, we update and we find the product. Mm-hmm. And we now that all these GP users are, so we're co-creating. We've got our own user group of GPs around the country that feed in ideas we share ideas innovations mm-hmm. with them before you know tests before we, we launch and so it's a real it's a real co-creation so um so it's a, but the change management the behavior piece is a really big really big deal and mm-hmm. that's where we work really really hard so as as, as we're you know, we're born from the nhs we currently live and breathe the nhs we're all working doctors within the nhs so we know the pain um that everybody's feeling with you know we, we've got scars on our backs to show it but so you know, going talking to um, practices, talking to uh, advocates and skeptics, you know, is it, great because not only do we learn lots, you know, hopefully we can we can share 
a lot of best practice and learnings because we're now at 750 practices, you know, we're, we're rolling out more and we're learning all the time. So we're sharing these best practice and learnings with new, new practices coming on. And inter- interesting that the newer practices then generally tend to see benefits much quicker because we've got all that knowledge and, and know-how behind us. And you know, nobody knows more about online consults than, than us. We have nearly, <laughs> well, by the end of this year, we'll, we'll have had over a million, over a million wow. online e-consults, which is incredible. Um, and the scale, the scale piece is difficult. Um, and it's taken us two and a half years of hard, hard work, you know, trying to get around 209 CCGs um, to make them aware of, you know, what, what we're doing and try to convince them, you know, to, to come with us on the journey. And, um, you know, that there is some central funding for online consultations in the GP forward view, which has helped stimulate interest. Um, and also with lots, with all the, I think all the challenges currently, as I talked about earlier about this tipping point, I think, you know, practices now realize that they have to adopt technology in order to enable them you know, to sustain uh, uh, you know, a viable future mm. going forward. You know, technology is not, it's not a silver bullet and it's not um, going to be answered to all the problems, but it is going to enable them to do certain things in better and more effective ways. Um, so, yeah, so, but I think the other thing with scale that's really helped us is, is our credibility, um, you know, being a clinically led company and safe patients and patient safety is first and foremost for us and it's not about we're not trying to disrupt like there's lots of disruptors out there um you know which is which is great i mean personally you know, disruption in healthcare can be quite a tricky subject particularly when you've got lives at risk um it's not as easy to break things and put them back together again but i do think disruption is important and i think there's lots of good work going on you know within our space by you know a lot of other companies which uh, you know i i highly regard um but I think for us, it's about evolution. It's about um, we want to take our our clinicians, our practices on a journey with us, and we evolve slowly. So you know we don't scare them off. Uh, we're not we're not trying to break what they're doing and give them something else. We're trying to take what they're doing, and make it better, and always learning over the, over the you know over the um, intervening period and and just iterating, improving, making things better. <clears throat> I think it's one thing as well, talking about your value proposition now and, you know, the bits that we've mentioned about, you know, it's really simple to adopt. Yes, there's a behavior change hump that we all need to get over and that's with any innovation. But, you know, there's lots of intangible things like it solves lots of problems for patients and this and that and the other. And you can attach some numbers to that. But I assume a lot of this comes down to financial, right? Because at the end of the day, everybody needs to not only save money, but make more money and particularly GP practices when actually yeah. there is someone looking at a P&L and, and, and really scrutinizing that so any new innovation that comes in has to have a pretty significant business case attached to it so yes i I can buy the point that you know that your clinical credibility helps and all these different things but at the end of the day someone's going to need to make a business case for this so i mean i've looked on your website your pricing structure and and you know you, you price this per patient for the size of a practice and things i mean how does that conversation go in your sales process you know what what's your what's your view on on the pricing structure and your revenue model when it comes to both making sales and actually running this company and and making money yeah i think yeah at the end of the day uh, the product's got to be cost effective and it's, it's got to be efficacious so um there we've spent a lot of time on on the return investment as you say the main intangibles but ultimately it comes down to to numbers um, yeah. and we've worked with a number of practices to try to develop a, a an ROI and um, and you know, it depends on how practices use it and how they engage uh, our, so our fund our pricing model is based on per capita uh, patient population um, and the main reason for that is because that, that's the way you know primary care is funded generally through GPMS or PMS contracts etc um, but the return on investment is based on shifting a uh, proportion of patients into an online space. And we've worked with a number of practices to sort of prove this model. But we say if, if we can get uh, practices, depending on their list size, but we give them targets to get them to a certain amount of online consults each day, which ultimately then uh, gives, we get them a weekly and a monthly total. And we work with them, we can individualize that to each practice and say, okay, if you get, depending on the, the practice setup, but if you get, uh, let's say, 60 consults a week through um, 
on, online and you can close 60 to 70% of those remotely, then you will save on average a GP um, session per week. Oh, wow. Um, that's pretty so significant. That's pretty significant, providing you know, that the practice adopts and engage. But that, they can do that. That's, that. That is a potential saving. So uh, um, there's more and more reliance now on locums um, within general practice. You know, there's fewer, fewer partners now. There are more part-time uh, GPs. So you know, there's more locum reliance. So if practice um, partners you know, can save a locum shift, um, then that's a substantial sh- saving. Um, or it might be, you know, they actually reinvest that money into other services or yeah. um, into, you know, in, into a healthcare professional, for instance, a, a specialty nurse or a diabetic mm-hmm. nurse that can then take, they can offload some of that work to them. So, uh, you know, every practice is different, but that's the, uh, the basics of our ROI. And it strikes me that this is very much a kind of a, almost like a front door to, potentially as you've mentioned a lot of other innovation both through the savings but actually even just on the back of what you guys have done you know you're on you're into 750 practices now these practices are obviously innovative to varying degrees but they'll be you know in a, a, a front-running group that are super innovative and things like that are you guys looking to layer more innovation on top of what you're already doing are you doing anything with new products you know what's next for e-consult yeah, so so we're constantly innovating. So innovation is our is our core. Um, we are, we have I say our development team in house. Everything's uh, owned and done in house. Every fortnight we have a roadmap session uh, where we go through our developments for the quarter and upcoming quarter. Um, so yeah, so as far as primary care is concerned, then the plan is to constantly evolve the product. We want to build more intelligence into the product more machine learning, we want to look at how we can work with other partners to add value. Um, so the first, the first one is the app. So we're working with the NHS app at the moment with the first online provider. So we developed the first, the first of type solution for them. So patients will be able to come online through the app. So that's dig- that digital first front door. Uh, we're building in video. So but we're different to a lot of um, video providers where it's patient initiated appointments the video will be initiated by the clinician so for instance if they if they deem that patient appropriate for a face-to-face appointment then they'll be given the option to have a video or uh, or a face-to-face if that's appropriate um we're building we just launched more and more pediatric content we're constantly updating our templates in line with nice guidelines and feedbacks but so uh, and you know we're working with uh, other partners to ultimately you know, further down the track to dip into medical records and to you know, look up medical histories for patients, which will then further inform our clinical decision-making uh, product and, you know, that clinical risk, um, de- depending on patients' past medical history and their, um, their medications, etc. So that's all coming. Um, we're also looking at how we can... Uh, build in monitoring, so you know, observations, for instance, if you can get observations from patients from home, then that would also be very beneficial. So these are all currently in work. Um, but one of the big exciting things is we've taken what we know, uh, our expertise and knowledge in digital triage. So as, as I mentioned earlier, we've, by the end of this year, we'll have, we'll have done a million online triages and take that into an urgent and emergency emergency care setting, which to be honest, James has got very similar challenges to primary care in terms of mm. increasing demand. I mean, eight, 8% increases in demand in ED over the last five years, which means each, I mean, every day we're seeing nearly 3,000 more patients than we were five years ago. 60% of ED doctors and, and training, uh, 60% of posts, uh, ST3 and 4 posts are open at the moment. So, you know, the staff are burning out. So, there's a lot of inappropriate attendances that don't necessarily need to see a needy doctor. Um, so we thought, wouldn't it wouldn't be great if we can actually take what we know and drop it into a more acute uh, setting. And we run, the Hurley Group uh, run six urgent care centres. We run one in Bexley and Sip Cup, uh, Queen Mary's Hospital. So we use that for the past two years. We've been developing a really exciting product down there. We've used that as our sort of innovation hub, if you like, um, where we, we provide the services. Um, but we put in a digital triage, that's e-triage, we're calling it, uh, which basically means patients turn up their 
um, and they have the option to check in via an iPad in the waiting room. There are seven iPads there. Um, they give us a the demographics. We look up their NHS number on the, on the uh, mini spine PDS lookup. And then we take a very brief triage history. So it's, it's a different history to primary care history. And it's been designed by ED doctors rather than GPs. Um, and the, the point is we want to try to identify who that patient is, verify their ID, and you know how sick they are as soon as we possibly can. Um, and at the moment, uh, we've been running that now for uh, about 18 months. We just had an independent evaluation uh, done. And we've had over 70,000 patients safely triaged this way. It takes an average four minutes from walking through the door to be triaged into the system. So we know within four minutes of them walking in the front door, whether who they are and how sick they are, where they need to mm. be, whether that's majors, minors, GP, etc. Um, the, there's no wait. There's never any wait for anybody to check in. The, there's 26% of patients over 65. Um, so it's very, very easy. We've made the interface very, very simple. One question per page, very, very quick. So it's very easy to use regardless of your age or demographic. Um, but, in, but more interestingly, the, the report concluded that by streaming this process, we've saved seven minutes. We've taken seven minutes off the time to treatment. Uh, we've improved the initial assessment KPIs from 75 to 100%. So everybody's seen within 15 minutes for initial assessment. Um, We've reduced the total time in, in the department, um, but also we picked up some really s- serious clinical cases very, very early. So there's a ex- great example of a gentleman who walked in a couple of weeks ago, a 24-year-old with a headache um, on a Saturday morning. Within three minutes, the system picked up that he was having a potential brain hemorrhage. Um, it was alerted straight into the clinical system. The GP came right out picked up the patient and got him in an ambulance to King's to neurosurgery. And we followed that patient up and he was actually having a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Wow. Historically, he'd be sitting in that waiting room. Um, and we asked, we, we took some of the nurse and said, look, what would you have thought with this, with this guy? And so, well, he's young. It's a, yeah, he's, he's got a history of migraine. It's a Saturday morning. Mm, he's dehydrated. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, chances are he could have sat there for 20, 30 minutes and, you know, and deteriorated. Um, so I picked up uh, MIs, heart, heart attacks, um, fast, fast AF, this sort of stuff. So, so it's picking patients up really, really quickly. So it's identifying those really, quick, really seriously ill patients and we're picking them up quickly. But it's also identifying the patients, the really well patients as well. And because um, we, we triage patients into Manchester triage priorities of P1 to P5. And those patients that are really well, um, we can pick them up really quickly and say, actually, can we redirect you somewhere else? So more appropriate healthcare professional. So maybe mm-hmm. redirect to the pharmacy or to the GP or direct to the access hub around the corner. So, so, so this is, I, I believe this is game changing and, um, you know, I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. And I think it's something that, you know, potentially that, that this is the first iteration, but it will change radically over the next sort of 12 months and become much more intelligent because we're getting lots and lots of data through the system now. Um, so we're using learning from all that data to make the system more intuitive, to make it more intelligent. Um, and we're building in some really jazzy functionality to capture um, OBS potentially as well at the same time. So we could potentially streamline uh, and or- automate that entire streaming process. <clears throat> wow. Mark, awesome work. Um, simple idea relatively simple tech although things that look simple often aren't in the background as you've alluded to solves loads of problems awesome scale with with what you're doing i think you know it, it's it's a real example to, to health health tech entrepreneurs particularly the ones that are domain experts they're in there looking for ideas and problems to solve it's it's, it's something that's incredibly simple that it's um at its beginning but obviously um the complexity involved in growing a company of of your size now is very difficult which is why it's pulled in people like yourself who've got experience in tech and sport and fitness and health and medicine and i think all of those worlds are certainly coming a lot closer together which is why i can see that you've you've done all the things in your career but um i thoroughly enjoyed the chat mark it's been it's been great for me i've i've learned i've learned certainly a lot um and i'm sure our listeners have too um, the way we close out these podcasts is that we hand back over to you to just kind of summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about eConsult, and just tell us if you've got any asks of our audience. Great, James. Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's been really interesting and you know, I much appreciate it. 
I guess from my point of view, you know, I'm, I'm um, a very old doctor who's been around the block uh, in business, but very young in terms of medical terms. I guess what I'd say is that um, there are massive opportunities out there and it needs people to embrace those opportunities and try new things. And I would encourage anybody listening, um, you know, who probably have thought about it many times, but thought it's maybe too difficult or too many obstacles, but you have a, if you have a great idea, to quote the famous phrase, just do it, you know, get on and try it. Because <laughs> um, you've got nothing to lose. And I would, I would hugely encourage you to do that because it, it needs, you know, we need for the NHS to be sustainable for the long term. We need some of these great people to step up and, you know, and, and just get on and, and try a few things out. Um, from any consult perspective, I think it's extremely exciting for us. Um, I'm very proud to be working for a company that's, you know, got such strong values and ethos around the NHS, you know, we work passionately to try to sustain the NHS for the future uh, because we care very passionately about it. Um, and that, you know, it does, does differentiate us in, in many, many ways. Um, and the urgent emergency care product is really exciting. And ultimately our next step is then to bring the primary and urgent care products together so you can actually start doing this from home so you don't actually end up at the wrong place at the wrong time. We'll get you to the right place wherever you need to be. Um, and finally, um, you know, message to any listeners is, first of all, thanks for listening. Um, and yeah, if you're a CCG um, or a practice um, and want to know more about primary care reconsult, please get in touch. We're more than happy to talk to you. Um, if you're an acute trust or a CCG and want to know about e-triage, then again, please get in touch. Um, we're very happy to take you to Queen Mary's hospital and show you or, or come and demo the product to you. Um, other than that, thanks very much, James. Um, I much appreciate the talk today. Perfect. Thanks, Mark. And, and what email address can people get you or eConsult on? Uh, so mark, M-A-R-K dot Harmon, H-A-R-M-O-N at webgp.com. Thanks, Mark.